it is terribly hard not to lose yourself, you know, when you're navigating spaces where, where people, where you're not, you know, like the majority of the folks that are there as you become more senior, particularly, and as you kind of rise to the ranks, it can be really lonely. It can be challenging. And inevitably that's the thing that made that, that meant that I left the corporate space. Welcome to everyday leadership a podcast where I interview leaders not defined by position or title everyday people who lead their lives in extraordinary ways and on this podcast they share their stories the life lessons and practical tools in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders today i have the pleasure the absolute pleasure of um sitting down with Mrs. India Martin, for those who don't know, India is a 25-year vet in the game, um, leading a global C-suite roles over the years, all around the world, in London, Frankfurt, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and she's an executive coach as well, award winner, so many different accolades, and more to come in the next um, couple of weeks as well, some announcements coming, so how are you doing, India? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I'm good. I'm just, I'm so happy to be here with you. You know, I'm a huge fan. You know, I listen to the podcast all the time. So for me to be on it is exciting. So thank you for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I think this has actually come at a, a real great um, time as well, actually, because we're just having a conversation around leadership, um, around certain things that you're you're currently stepping into. But before we delve into that, I'm probably going to start in probably the weirdest place. I'm going to start with you as a, a brand and the brand that you've built and how that's been very, very important to kind of set you apart from other people navigating a world that has always not necessarily resembled you or looked like you, especially in countries like, like Japan and, and Germany and then obviously London. Because I, I was looking, it's like, you seem to put yourself in in countries and situations that were really, really outside of your comfort zone. It's like, you don't look like me here. I'm going to go there. So <laughs> was that intentional? You know, I would say partially, to be honest. Um, but part of it is was about being opportunistic um, and that there were things that needed to be done in specific places, and I was prepared to do them. I was prepared to go to places other folks weren't necessarily prepared to go because I knew that, to some extent that would build my political capital and the organizations that I was in if I was solving a need, you know? And so when I went to Frankfurt, I solved a need. Um, the bank that I was working for was Deutsche at the time and it was a German bank. And there was a big project that needed to happen and nobody was trying to leave London and go to Germany. Um, but I did, <laughs> but I did. I mean, it was only a year and a year and a bit, maybe 14, 16 months, something like that. Um, but what I did was I would go to Frankfurt on Monday and come back on Friday. And then just be in London, be back in London on the weekend. And it's not that far away. And so I was able to do that at the time. I didn't have kids, so it was a lot easier. Um, and so I, 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 that was that one. Um, Japan, unfortunately, the reason I took that role is because one of my peers passed away who was running Asia for the, for the company that I was working at the time for that business. And so um, I decided to go. But my boss was like, what are we, I don't know what I'm going to do. We were just kind of talking. And I was like, well, you want me to go? He was like, you go to Tokyo? 
And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, why not? I mean, you know, it'll it'll broaden my experience. And if I'm talking about, you know, at that time, I had much higher aspirations of leadership in the corporate sector. And so I was like, it'll broaden my, my global experience, broaden everything that I've done. And um, and it'll give me something that other people don't have. And that was really important to me in terms of differentiation. I was like, how do I do that? So Japan was the most wonderful place that I've ever lived. And I and I'm actually quite it would have been a place that I easily could have stayed if it weren't so far away from everybody else, because it was a super sleeper destination. I loved it. I was there almost three years um, and really, really loved it. And, and again, the only problem with it was it was so far away from my family and friends as opposed to anything else. How how different was it out there for you? Because you actually took the next step. You learned the language and all that. So you really immersed yourself in the culture. But how different was it for you navigating as as a woman, as a black woman in that culture? Um, in Japan, yeah. they, they, just, they call you gaijin which is foreigner. So it doesn't matter. As long as you're non-Japanese, you're a foreigner. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, green, red, or other. You're just a foreigner. And so they have Japanese and all other. <laughs> and so it was and so it wasn't so challenging, you know, and I thought that from a gender perspective it could be challenging because you often hear about, you know, the kind of gender bias that happens a lot in Japan or the role of the woman in Japan versus the man in Japan. And here are a couple of things. Um, you really have to have a cultural context when, you, when you're thinking about those kind of things. And now that I understand the Japanese cultural context, I understand a lot better. Do I feel like some of it's still quite gender biased? Yes. But I didn't necessarily experience that for, for a couple of reasons. The first one is that, again, I was a foreigner. Full stop. Gender relatively agnostic, right? So so I was a foreigner um, and I was a leader. So there wasn't a lot of people were going to say or do with me because I, I was responsible for their livelihood to some extent. And so I think there's a part of that. But also, here's an interesting thing about Japan that I learned. I was, I remember when I first got there and there was this like, um, like, it's so weird, like in the mornings, like at the, at the lift bank, when, or the elevator bank, when you're going into the office, like there are just like a thousand people there. It is the, it is because there are a lot of people in Japan and it's a small place, right? So a thousand people. You get ready to get onto the elevator and you see all the men get on first and all the women kind of stand back and wait for the men to get on first. And I was like, not me. <laughs> so I, you know, here I am tipping. I'm like, whatever. But anyway, so eventually I didn't do the same thing, but I understood. And apparent, and so I was talking to one of my one of my coworkers, and I was like, he was like, you know, he's Japanese. He's like, how are you getting on? And I was like, what's the thing with the elevators with the lifts? Why is it that you know men are always go first? And he said, now he said, I'm going to tell you the historical context. He's like, and it's evolved, and some of it's not always um, as benign. He was like, but in Japan. Originally, the reason we did that was because it was the man's responsibility to make sure it was safe for the woman to pass. Okay. And I was like, wait a minute, what? I was like, whoa, that was historical context that I didn't understand. I was like, okay, well, if you want to make it safe for me, then I'll just, I'll let you get on first. <laughs> yes, you get on that lift first so in case something happens. <laughs> I am protected. So, so, um, so yeah, I mean, so those, so those were things I learned. Like I went into the supermarket the first time when I was there, I'm li I, to get, learn the language. 
I moved into a Japanese area. I didn't move into the expat area. I didn't live with the expats. I lived with Jap- with the Japanese people. And I did that on purpose because I believe I can do anything. This is a problem. I went there the first time I went to the supermarket in my community and I wanted to get some rice. And then there were there was an entire aisle of rice because you're in Japan with different kinds. And I couldn't read what the rice was or how to cook it. It was a problem. I remember calling my mother. I remember going home and calling my mother and crying. Because I was like, I can't read anything. Why did I do this? It was terrible. Um, but it helped my language grow really quickly. And the other thing was I, I had some, I bought some some salmon. Not understanding that it was meant for sushi and I cooked it. And my neighbor had come across the hall. This woman who lived across the hall, this Japanese lady. And she came over for something. She's like, oh, it smells good. And she was like, that's sushi salmon. You're cooking sushi salmon? I didn't know. It was salmon to me. It just looked like salmon. So I'm just saying there are things that you learn as you go. But those cult, that cultural immersion taught me so much. And I would have never known that it was sushi salmon had I not had a Japanese person tell me that it was sushi salmon. If I lived in the expat community, I would have just been buying the salmon. You know, yeah. so, so that's an important, that was important for me to really learn the culture of where I was. And what that meant was Japanese people were so open to me. Because I could, I learned to speak the language well, relatively. I wasn't fluent, but I could definitely get around very, very easily. I could understand a lot. Um, and so it meant that, that Japanese people who are so, um, they're very, they're, the reason they often shy away and they often don't get engaged is because they're so offense is huge in their culture and they don't want to offend you. So they'd rather not say anything to you and step back than offend you. So if they don't think they speak good enough English, they're not going to say anything to you because they don't want to offend you and they're not sure they're going to get it right and how it might come out. And that is a huge part of their culture, offense and not offending people. Politeness is like a tenet of their culture. And that was something that I learned. And so because I learned to speak the language, it took some of that away for them. They didn't have to worry so much about offense because they knew I'd understand what they were saying or they knew that I understood their cultural context and it just opened wide doors and they were the most giving kind people as a result of that experience. Uh, I think we just touched on this episode I had with El Flavilla where we were also talking about something similar, where when you go into a community like, like Japan, like you did, it's so easy to go into the expat world because it's nice, it's comfortable, it's easy. Like you said, you don't know about the salmon and you just bought the same thing over and over again. But by immersing yourself in places that were uncomfortable, it was harder, but it broke down barriers, and it also gave you a richer experience to be able to really, really get into the culture and understand where you were living. It's like going on holiday and you spend all your time in the resort rather than going out into the locals. Like, yeah, you've gone on holiday, you've gone to a different country, but you haven't really tried the culture. You just stayed in the same environment that you're comfortable in. So that's really, really interesting that you did that and learning about the impact that had just goes to show why we need to actually push ourselves out of our comfort zone. And it kind of leads into the conversation we have around um, like cultural fit versus a cultural ad, where a lot of organizations find it so easy to have people who look like them, sound mm-hmm. like them, same universities, have those people around them. When you have people who are different to you and who challenge that status quo, it gets a little bit uncomfortable and therefore they, they pull back. So how have you found that, especially as you've really gone to the top levels in your career the last 25 years when you worked in corporate how did you find navigating that space so i think that um if you're a person of color in a majority white culture um you know we're taught navigation very early 
<laughs> very, very, very early, like out of the womb early. You know, we know because we're navigating a world that was not designed for us in the first instance, um, that we have to have a level of bicultural fluency and competency that um, the other people don't have to have. Right. And, and I think that what I, what I was able to do was master that bicultural competency as opposed to like, I, you know, there's this, you know, there's that whole thing about code switching. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't consider what I do to code switch. What I consider it is I have a high level of bicultural competency. Like I under influency and I know how to navigate because I have that high level of fluency in culture. And I, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to minimize people's experience because I'm not, and I'm not saying that my experience was always easy. Um, but I will say that the trick for me was, was being able to navigate in spaces. And, and here's the thing, right? Because I did all that stuff. Like I went to, I went to Germany, I went to Japan, I, you know, I was in Hong Kong. I did all that stuff. I could talk about things that folks couldn't talk about. I had experiences that they didn't have. I had, I had, um, ticks in the box that they didn't have, right? And, and a part of that for me was understanding that as a Black woman, again, I walk through the world differently and um, than they did. And it was hard, right? It was really tough to do. But again, you know, when I, when I think about something that I might tell people is that... Um, it is terribly hard not to lose yourself, you know, when you're navigating spaces where, where people, where you're not, you know, like the majority of the folks that are there as you become more senior, particularly, and as you kind of rise to the ranks, it can be really lonely. It can be challenging. And inevitably that's the thing that made that, that meant that I left the corporate space. I was tired. I was tired of being kind of like one of the only ones. I was tired of being called for all the diversity conversations. I was tired of being the poster child. I was tired of I have a, I had I felt that I had an absolute responsibility to people who look like me both in race and gender to make sure that I was supportive of their pursuits and so that meant my calendar was full all the time of women and people of color who needed who wanted to figure out how and needed help or trying to navigate and that was tiring too because I was trying to do that on top of my day job and so when you think about the kind of um, we talk about that cultural competency and cultural fluency in organizations. Um, as you grow, it becomes sometimes harder to navigate because the pressures become so much greater, right? And and wanting to, to present an example so that you can open doors for other people becomes so much greater. Um, and, so, and, and saying no to people who need your help who look like you becomes so much harder when you don't have the space or time. So it's just, you know, those kind of cultural, that kind of cultural thing is kind of, I think, at the base of decision-making around the how and what. And different cultures require different things in organizations, right? So you also have to be very clear and aware of the culture that you're operating in, you know, because they do differ from place to place. Mm -hmm. The culture when I was at Deutsche Bank was very different than the culture that when I was at Lehman Brothers, which was very different than the culture when I was at J.P. Morgan. So it's, 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 you know, you also have to be a student of the cultural context in which you're operating. So you're constantly thinking and evaluating and then taking action. You're not going in with a very prescribed notion of this is how it's going to be, so I'm going to act as more based on my surroundings, I'm going to operate this way. 
And everyone, I'm sure, when you move to different departments, again, the culture is slightly different because it depends on who's around you, who's in charge, and all that kind of stuff. So you also have to be always constantly on your on your guard, I guess, based on what you just said. Yeah, and I don't know if it's, I, 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 I don't necessarily know that it was on my guard as much as it was just constantly navigating, right? Yeah. But it becomes, but it does become quite intuitive after some practice, you know, honestly. You know, you kind of learn, you know, really quickly the folks that you need to steer clear of. You know, you know the political actors, you know, you know, you kind of, but you have to pay attention, right? You have to pay attention to those things. That's, and that's all a part of the cultural context. You know, when you're, when you're going to work at a company, you want to be interviewing the company as much as they're interviewing you. You want to know that this is a culture in which you think you could thrive and operate, right? And, and because the culture is about, not just about the people, it's about the systems and how it's structured. Mm-hmm. Because there are some things in culture that will not change based upon structure. And you have to pay attention to that as you're stepping into a space where you can find yourself, you know, like in a, it, with that tension that you feel going to work, that I can't stand these people or they're wearing me out or these processes are silly. That's all a part of the cultural context because that's the way folks operate. That's the way a business is run and the way the business is structured. And you have to know that you can step into that and that it's something you, you have the right skills yourself. And frankly, willingness to navigate some of that. And what impact does you navigating that space have on you, but from a personal family perspective? I know you've talked about the fact that you were tired and obviously that's when you pulled out Jake Morgan said doing different things. But even from your family, when you're dealing with that on a day-to-day basis, did you ever did you were you able to separate both work and home or did you come home sometimes and you're like, I'm just drained and tired. And obviously that affects the way you are with your husband and, and your kids and stuff like that. So work and home blended together because like at that level of organization, you're always working. Like there's no, I mean, there's, you're just working at home if, when you get home. And I'm being honest when I say that, you know, especially in those kind of environments and especially having global roles, Global roles are cute, but it doesn't mean that you get to go to bed at, you know, sometimes you have to make sure that you're being thoughtful about the fact that while you might be in London, you have part of your team in Sydney and for them to always have to do 10 o'clock at night isn't a good, isn't fair, right? So sometimes you might need to do that. And so, you know, having global roles sounds really cute and sexy, but the reality is that, you know, and that's what happened in Japan. One of the other reasons I left Japan was I was like, I can't be doing these nine and 10 o'clock calls every night to the U.S. And that's what I had to do. Right. Because, you know, it, to get the time zones right for all the people who needed to be in the discussion for me in Japan, it might be 930 or 1030 or 1130 at night. And so I think what you what you understand is that, you know, if you're going to have that kind of role, um, that it, it is going to require at that level of organization, it does require you to be talking to people in different parts of the world. And you can be doing that at any time of day or night. And so what that means is that at home. Um, you know, I tried to be really intentional about like dinner time and some other things that I knew that I need to be present for. But eventually that did become a lot for me to handle with my kids. When I had one kid, it was OK. It was easier. When I had three, it was not easier. And so, um, you know, the one kid, when I just had my son, like when I travel on, I'd go on these trips. Like, I, you know, let's call it going to when I was in London, going to Hong Kong. I would schedule my big long trips around his, his half terms and I would just take him everywhere I went because I was like, I, you know, I, I don't want to leave him behind. And I, I would try not to do heavy long travel while he was in school at home. 
Mm-hmm. Because I felt that, you know, I might go to New York for a couple of days or whatever, but, or even go to Asia for a couple of days, did that too. Um, did Asia in 20, 24 hours one time, like went over for a meeting and flew back, which was crazy. I mean, 24 hours in turn. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's nuts. But my point is, but what was important to me was getting back home to my kid for something that he had, a sports thing that he had. And I couldn't change the date of a board meeting in a particular country. So I had to go. And, but I also wanted to be back for my kids sports thing that he was sports day day at school so i had to make a choice like am i i have to go to the meeting am i gonna miss my kid's sports day and his face if i'd have missed that sports day would have been where's my mom so i couldn't do that and those were kind of choices and things i had to make which is why it also got very tiring right i i mean i loved it and i did it for a long time i mean like i I paid my dues over 23 years actually and said i mean near 25 but you know, over 23 years, I paid my dues. So I'm not, you know, I, I loved it. But, you know, the other thing that happened is in terms of family, I actually was doing an Asia trip and I woke up and I didn't know where I was because I'd been traveling so much. I literally did not know where I was when I woke up in the hotel room. I was like, I had to look around and think about it. And it took me a couple of minutes and I had to go look out the window to remember where I was because I had the shades drawn because it was night. And then... um I came back home and my little child wouldn't come to me because I just wasn't around. She was like three and she was much more interested in our, than nanny than she was me. And I was like, Oh no, 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 no. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. That balance was really hard and it's hard to do with family and something you have to, something's going to suffer. There's none of us you can have it all stuff. That's rubbish. I don't care who says that. That is pure bull. But um, but something's going to suffer at some point in time. And the question is, do you have the infrastructure to support your family if you're going to make these choices? Um, and for a lot of men, you have they have wives who might do that. For a lot of women, they don't necessarily have husbands who are prepared to do that. Some are. And I do know a lot of women that I know who are very senior have husbands at home because you need that kind of support. But a lot of folks, a lot of men aren't trying to do that necessarily, particularly in black communities, okay, while their wife is doing this thing. Some are, and, and hats off to them because I don't think it should matter. But in our communities, you know, there are a lot of husbands who are like, yeah, I'm going to stay at home while you go off and make all of the money and do a, and travel around the world. They're like, what? You know, and that's a cultural thing for us, right? So mm-hmm. so it's an interesting, that's an interesting thing. I can, I can relate to that. I remember when my son was really, really little. I was working away a lot. And I came home and he wouldn't come to me. He didn't recognize me. And he was still, still a baby and I had to travel just as quick. I've said it was at that point in time. But I still remember to this day, like the, the feeling I had of me. And my wife's like, yeah, just give him a little who will adjust to you. And he hit me. I was like, I need to figure this out somehow because it's just, it was, it was really hard. So you did the the trips back and forth and um you talk around your son and the nanny i was like yep but that took me back to a dark place <laughs> darkness it was a dark place it was well, I, I think it's um that's one thing i actually want to ask you because so often we talk around we want to get people in senior positions we want to get to the high echelons of organizations and corporations but what's the You've touched on it a little bit, but I want to go in a bit deeper. What's the reality of actually holding that position? Because it's not it's not all glitz and glamour. And there's so much responsibility. There's so many things that you, you have to do, things you have to navigate. 
So what's the reality of actually being in that position and how hard and difficult is it? So people can understand that the title is not always what it's cut up to be. You need to be really ask yourself, do you really want this or not? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it is. It's the title's great. You know, it is, but it is hard work, it, you know, and it does, you think people like, oh my goodness, this person's a managing director of this organization or they're a CEO of that. What they give up, like you have to be prepared to give up something and risk something for that in a major way. And also, you know, the thing is, the more senior you become, the more folks are coming for your spot or want to. Mm-hmm. So you have to be real astute about that too, right? And be on your game. And I don't mean on your game in terms of having, but there is a navigation required, right? You got to be able, you got to be operating at, a pretty high level for a pretty extended period of time. And that requires a lot of effort and energy, which is why if you look at kind of, particularly in kind of the environments I was in investment banking, if you look at the top of the house, you see some gray hair, but those are the folks who actually push through. The reality is that that's a young person's game. Like a lot of folks are young in that space because they have the energy to be working all those hours and doing all that stuff. And so if you haven't kind of, and, and this isn't a criticism, it's just kind of a reality. If you haven't kind of ascended to a certain level of organization, there's a gap in age because folks are tired, right? You see people, people start to leave and do everything else and find other things to do, you know, like in their forties that people are dipping out. Like they're like, okay, I've done this for 20 years. I'm out because it is heavy and it, it does require a lot. But at the more, at, at the more senior levels, you know, staying there is not a joke, mm-hmm. right? Because again, there are a finite number of spots at, at the top of the house and everybody wants those finite number of spots. And with regime changes and leadership changes, you might change too. So it is all, it's, it's a constant trying to balance, um, you know, doing the role that you do and doing it well, but also not getting so attached to it that you think that that's who you are. Because if you do, you might be sadly mistaken because the rug can come out really quickly. And I'm not saying, uh, again, you know, that, that is, that is a reality of sitting at the top of the house of an organization. That is not a, um, and people aren't going to like this that you do or that that you do, but often you have to make decisions that you cannot tell people about. You can't tell them why, because you can't get into that level of detail because it might be something that's related to the strategy or non-disclosures or anything, right? So you can't always explain to people why you make the choices you make and people are mad because you've done X, but you can't say anything about why you've done it other than, you know, the kind of things that are public. And that's hard, right? So you're always balancing stuff. And so it is a delicate dance between, um, you know, ensuring that you remember that you're in service to your people and they're not in service to you mm-hmm. because you are in service to your people. Your job is to move the barriers out of the way for them to do theirs. Your job is not for them to be serving you. It, you know, and, and, you know, obviously you have to do the same for somebody else. So they may help you do that for your leader, you know, in terms of them being able to provide stuff, but they're still not in service to you. You're in service to them. And I think that a lot of, and and in terms of longevity and staying power, leaders who are servant leaders who understand how important it is to serve their people are the ones who I, who I see staying in place longer than others who don't do that. So don't get attached to the title and serve your people. Mm -hmm. So is that your, is that how you define leadership as servant leadership? I mean, partially. Okay. Partially, you know, I think um, there are a couple of things that I consider when I think about what good leadership is. That's one thing. I mean, like kind of being in service to your people is one thing. I think um, 
Another one is the ability to make decisions, brave decisions, understanding that, you know, people will forgive a bad decision, but they will not forgive indecision. And so, you know, and a bad decision being, you know, you've made you've made a decision based on the information you had at that time. So you had to make it, but it actually didn't end up being the right one. Had you had more information, it might have been different. So when I say bad decision, I mean, you know, a decision that actually didn't end up being the right one later down the road. But folks aren't going to aren't going to take a decision because nobody wants somebody who is supposed to be leading who is flip flopping. So you got to kind of you got to create stability for your team, especially in environments like this, where there's a lot of uncertainty. And that means you've got to make decisions so folks know what the direction we're going. And often in this kind of environment, particularly, you may be the only stability they have. That stability at work because they know that you know what you're doing and you know the road that you're going to travel. When all around us, you know, there isn't, there's a very, there's a lack of stability. Like we don't know what's happening with vaccines and people are, you know, we don't know what's happening with government stuff is happening. We can't control anything else. If you can provide that that stability and control for people in the environment that you can control, then you may be the only stability they have. And so being able to make a decision is really important. Yeah, we see organizations, governments, where there's a lot of indecision. And yet these people still in positions of power, they're still running organizations. And you see it time and time again, and you're scratching your head like, had a decision today, tomorrow you flip-flopped, and it keeps on going back and forth. Like, yeah, it keeps on just, that doesn't necessarily change their position at the top. Why do you think that's so tolerated then, still? What do you think is um, changing? Power and privilege, maybe? I mean, let's call it what it is. Because you're talking about, you know, just naming it you're talking about white patriarchal societies yeah and a person of color could never get away with that ever people of color are frog marched out for less <laughs> way less way way less i mean things that would be trivial that would not even be a mention for some of these other folks i was watching as an example last night i was watching um something around Tiger Woods because he was in a really bad car accident yesterday. And I, you know, bless him. I, you know, wish him a speedy recovery. But one of the things that they were talking about is, you know, the fact that when he had those affairs, when he was married back in 2009 with his wife and he had those affairs, how he literally had to come out on public television and apologize for his affairs publicly to the world as if it, as if they were in that marriage. Do you know how many Men are out here having affairs who don't look like him. Yeah. And are they coming? And it ruined his career. I mean, for a, he was off the scene for 10 years because he had affairs. Now, I'm not minimizing the impact of having affairs on a relationship, but that's important. Why? Why is that important? And that's my point, right? Is that, you know, when you think of when you're asking the question around, um, how people stay in place. They stay in place because of the power that they have. It has very little to do with the skill that they have. It's about power. Um, and privilege kind of over centuries has created an infrastructure that helps people to continue to have that power, regardless of their skills, regardless of their capabilities. 
That is not to say that everybody in positions of power who's who's white doesn't have the skill and capability, because that's not the truth. I'm not that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is those who do not deserve to be there because they continue to make bad decisions, run businesses into the ground, challenge political systems, is because they don't because the infrastructure around power enables them to continue to be there. And that people will vote in the best interest of them of themselves before they think about what that means for greater society. Facts. That is so true. But then how do you break that power dynamic down? And is it possible? I know you do a lot of work around um, equity, um, around racism, around inclusion in the organizations. But with everything you've done so far and everything you've seen over the years and experienced for yourself, do you ever feel like it's a... Uh, losing battle or is it just a very slow battle that's slowly being won? I don't know about slowly being won, but slowly being fought for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I say slowly being fought. I'm not sure about slowly being won. Um, It is slow. I don't think it's a losing battle. But, you know, when you talk about breaking down power and privilege, I mean, okay, so think of it this way. This is my favorite analogy. I always use this. And if anybody's heard me say it before, I apologize. But this is like one of my favorites. Think of it this way. Okay. You've been playing hockey for 20 years. Okay. So let's just say you've been playing hockey for 20 years. Field hockey, whatever you want, lacrosse, whatever. You've been playing whatever you require with that stick or pole or whatever it might be that you're using. So let's just say hockey. You've been playing that for 20 years. You look over and you realize, oh my goodness. My opponents didn't even have hockey sticks. But they still managed to play and win sometimes. What now happens when we give them hockey sticks? They managed to play and win sometimes without them. Yeah. What happens when I, so you, you know, and so, and so that whole thing, right? If I was in a position of power, I wouldn't want to lose it either. Let's be realistic. That's the human condition. That's a human thing, right? If you have it, you don't want to lose it. All this talk about DEI for people who feel like they might be losing power is a really challenging thing. And I understand why it's challenging, right? But here's the thing about inclusion. Inclusion is inclusion for everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're red, white, green. Like I really believe that there's a lot of work to do around equity to ensure that, that everybody has equal access to opportunities and everybody has what they need to be successful. But I also believe in true inclusion, which means everybody should be included. So inclusion doesn't mean that you're excluding white people. That's not what it means. But if I were always in a position of power and I was always in the position of winning, and now you're telling me that this other person's going to have an equal chance of that, that means I might lose some time. And am I prepared to do that? That's the question. And what does it say about my skill if they were playing without the hockey sticks and still managed to win and I always had hockey sticks? Facts. What does that say about my skill? And me starting to question myself. Ooh, because that, that fear is, wait, hold on. These folks over here now have hockey sticks and they managed to win. And so am I as good as I thought I Am I really here because I was good at hockey? And that's an important thing to kind of consider when you think about how you address power and privilege. 100%, 100% agree with that. I think for me, what I, what I found is the fear is the biggest thing 
because even like you said, inclusion is about everyone. Doesn't matter what what shade, what color you are. Inclusion is about everyone. But that's not what a lot of white people who have that power and privilege automatically hear. In the first instance, the hear is I'm giving up, I'm losing something, and therefore yeah. they get scared. And it's like, okay, I don't want to lose that. I'm scared. What can I do to keep on holding on to that power? Rather than thinking I'm not necessarily losing, or even thinking I need to get better and improve, which is what we've had to do. A lot of times we've had to look at ways and be like, how can I, working harder doesn't work, how can I work smarter, how can I improve, how can I get into those kind of positions? So we've had to think outside the box where for years they haven't had to do that because they've had that privilege. Now they're being forced to do that and it's not something that comes easy or natural to them. So there's there's that automatically, automatic pushback that you get. I don't think it's all, I don't think it's all conscious. I don't think that's a conscious thing necessarily either. I don't think people necessarily know what that feeling is. I mean, know that that's, that's likely what it's driven from. I don't think that that's, it's a, cause for a lot of folks, it isn't a conscious thing. It just doesn't sit right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and unless you do that self exploration and self awareness work, you have to do your work before you can do the work, you know, of, of making the change, then it's not necessarily conscious. So while you, while we're saying that this might be, this is how people are likely feeling, it could be, a, it's very, subconscious feeling for a lot of folks. It's not necessarily something they're consciously thinking. And actually in their minds, they may be like, yeah, this may, this is, we do have to do this, but in their hearts, it feels very different. But that heart thing is what about me? Mm. Right. So there's a, there's also the kind of alignment between head and heart when you're having the conversation about making it equitable for everybody. And when you think about that, taking something away thing, you know, again, an example I often use is I say, let's say I have three kids, six months old, eight years old, and 12 years old. If we're going to have dinner, right, my six-month-old needs a high chair to come to the table. We have to put him in a special chair to bring her to the table. My eight-year-old and 12-year-old do not need high chairs. Giving them all high chairs would be equality. They don't need that. Equity is giving the one who needs something what they need in that moment. So I gave the baby the high chair. The other two don't need it. It doesn't mean they won't need something else that I might have to support them on at some point down the road. What it means is the baby is the one who needs the high chair right now. And that's the way I ask people to think about what equity is and how you, why you would be doing something for one person and not the other. Because this group needs it. That group doesn't right now. It doesn't mean they won't need something later, but this group needs it. So let's focus on that and getting that right. And then we can worry about whether or not they need it forever or whatever that might be. But that's, that, that is the story of equity. And it isn't about taking something away from my eight-year-old and 12-year-old. They don't need any high chairs to eat dinner. It's about making sure that the one who needs it has what they need to be successful. Preach. Preach. <laughs> Preach. So one thing you that you've um you have to talk talk to was about relationships and about your husband and um he's been a great obviously support to you. Oh my goodness. And I actually want to go back because you had like you said you had a, a high position and you guys met when you're already in your corporate career. And we've always had offline conversations around navigating relationships and how hard that can be. So I just wanna like how how was that initial meeting? How did you, as a high flying exec, deal with someone who financially might not have been in your level at that point in time? But that wasn't necessarily your focus, and you saw through all of that to be able to then obviously get married, raise three fantastic kids, have a wonderful um, relationship and marriage. Um, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think that the thing about my husband that I really appreciate 
is that he does what he loves. Like he is, he is all about, like he is a, an artist and a designer and that's what he does. And he don't give a toss about what anybody else does. He cares about what he does. He loves his work. And so he didn't ever feel in competition with me because he was doing what he loved. You know, and, and I think, and that's huge. And he was like, go on out there, girl, and do what you got to do. You know, he's always been like super cheerleader number one. I mean, he will go, he has been in the trenches with me. Like, you know, as I left corporate and started one of my entrepreneurial enterprises and it didn't go so well, he was in the trenches like, dude, we're in the trenches then. You know, and so I think that, I mean, I know how lucky and blessed I am for that. And I think that it was certainly not of this earth ordained (laughs) that it would be that way. (laughs) Um, But I will tell you this, that um, I didn't, I didn't get to the highest levels of organization until I was married to him. I mean, I was, I was, you know, director level or VP or director level, but I didn't get to managing director and COO and all that stuff until I was with him because I had the stability and support at home that meant that I could do that. I don't know that I would have or could have in the same way, to be honest. And, 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 that is absolutely the truth. I have been able to do the things that I've been able to do and soar the way that I've been able to soar because of him. And I'm really clear about that. And I don't have any qualms telling people that either because I can't, I, I know that my home life is stable. I know that he is going to hold it down regardless. He still works and does everything he needs to do. I mean, he, it's not like he's, he's slacking. He has his own company that he's been running for. I mean, you know, he's been in his industry for like 35 years you know, and he's been running his own company for 10 of those. So he's not, he's doing fine, but he, but we just have chosen different paths and he has never tried to be in the corporate world and doesn't want to, you know? And so he's like, this is my lane over here. I'm in, I'm a creative and that's what I do. Go over there and do that corporate thing. I'm glad that you go on and you, you're the best that you can be in your corporate space, which I have no interest in doing. And I'm over here doing my creative thing, designing and creating and building and doing whatever. And his clients love him. Mine love me. We're in different places, but he's always been a support. And so I'm just lucky, you know, and I, and I'm very lucky to have somebody who looks like me who can do that too. Because culturally, our cultural context doesn't always, doesn't always support that. Um, and I'm not saying that, that, you know, there aren't men out there who were absolutely supportive of their wives, but the selflessness with which he supported me when I was trying to grow through all the things I've been trying to do um, is not something I've witnessed that often. Yeah, it's, I can, I can definitely agree with that. I do a lot of work um, offline with um, my wife, with the counseling stuff like that, especially with our couples. And I can definitely agree with that. It's not something that I, you find very, very easily. And in fact, in a lot of relationships, generally speaking, when you have the woman who is earning a lot more, for example, I find that they, there's always this issue of ego, especially on the man's side, where it's like, well, she's earning more than me, I need to do certain things or act a certain way. And I've seen that become a barrier rather than recognizing that we're in this together. We're yeah, different, different journeys, doing different things, but we're together doing this. Mm-hmm. And you guys have been able to to do that, even from, I guess, looking at your relationship, even from, from way back then. I mean, when someone who is not earning as much as, let's say I was, what, 20 and you're 22, 23, you're earning twice what I'm earning right now. For me to, to step to you from our culture, it's hard to do. Because you're thinking, 
My she, husband is not, and my husband is no punk, right? He is like, yo, <laughs> but that's not the standard though, because you're gonna be thinking. Well, here's the thing: he didn't know. How would he know? He didn't know that. Like, like I said, sure. this is the difference. Also, I never come out the gates with what I do or who I or, or any of that. I never did that. So, like, when we met, it wasn't, ba- I wasn't like, sw- you know, like, oh, you know, I got this job doing it. I didn't do that. Like, we, like, I met him on a vibe. It was completely like, not even about work. So that came later, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and he's like, oh, okay. But he knew, he kind of got to know me a little bit and he knew who I was and my, and, and my job doesn't define who I am. Like, and that's the thing. But if you lead with that, then that's what you're going to get. I didn't lead with that. You, you didn't tell him, you didn't ask what the five year plan was on the first day. No. Fascinating. I found his work really fascinating. But here's the thing. He traveled as much as I did for work. So he had a real global perspective too, which made which was which was much more exciting to me that we connected on the fact that we both had jobs where we traveled all the time. And he'd be gone for three or four weeks at a time for his job. You know, because he does live event production and he produces corporate events, live events. He has clients all around the world and big clients, like big corporate clients that you would know. So he's not like half-stepping by any stretch of the imagination. And he traveled as much as I did. And he understood that experience. So when I needed to travel, he didn't stress me out because he understood it because he knew he had to do it too. And he got why, like when I was like, babe, I'm so tired. I love you, but I'm going to call you in the morning. He wasn't tripping. He wasn't like, oh, why aren't you talking to me? Or I haven't seen you all. He was like, I got you. Call me in the morning. It will be good. Because he had that same experience of work. And sometimes I'd be at home trying to navigate our kids and he'd be off for two weeks in, I don't know, Morocco or China or Macau or wherever in the world he'd be because he traveled wherever there were live events for corporations, annual general meetings or road shows or whatever. And he designed them and produced them. And here's me like at home with the kids and he'd be there. So I think that a part of it was being really blessed with finding somebody who understood. Because even though we do different things, he absolutely understood when I needed to travel. There was never a question. He was never like, oh my God, you're going to Hong Kong again or whatever. He's like, okay, when you back? Okay, what we need to do? All right, I got the, so I'm not going to travel. We try not to travel at the same time. That's what, that was kind of our rule. Like one of us would try to be at home while the other one was traveling. But we also had a tight family. So his mom would be there like, oh, you want me to come this week? You both have to? Okay. So his mom would come and Nana and, and granddad would come and stay with the kids, which they loved. So we made sure that we had a structure to support it but he understood me. And I also say this, which is the other blessing. And I am going to thank his family for this. My husband, it has seven sisters. So he would have gotten his backside beat down. <laughs> he got it. He, he's the only boy of seven sisters. Wow. He so he gets it, right? So he's like, yeah, 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 I got you. You do whatever you got to do. And his sisters are all amazing, super accomplished women, you know, PhDs and this and this and that. So he's like, do you? So he was accustomed to seeing women, black women be successful and was the support of them too. So it wasn't difficult for him to do that with me. Yeah. So how did you um, make that time for each other? With you traveling all around the world and doing different things, how did you make that time to actually grow and build and that trust and that bond with one another then? I think that's something that people need to learn more about, actually sustaining a relationship, especially when you you might be different parts of the world from time to time. Yeah. I mean, my first, when I first came to the U S I was here without him for three years, we commuted. 
right, for three years. He's here now because of the you know pandemic. We, he came like, oh, they're locking it down. So it's the last March. He was like, I'm on a flight. So you know, so so that was you know, but but we commuted, and I think a part of it is like again, we're each other's base. Like we both know where the source of our stability comes from, and we both know that we couldn't do this without the other. So it doesn't matter whether we're physically in the same place or not. I know where I get my source. I know where my source is, and we also. Um, have so much jokes like we are we are always laughing <laughs> because we're both have very serious sense of humor it's very different but we both have a sense of humor and so we're laughing all the time and i think that's another important part like our kids are straight crazy and we'll be like hot x cussing our kids and then like we'll be in our room like <laughs> <laughs> She said, and he he said, and that one, is, you know, so I think, I think it's just that we're best friends too. So even with any best friend that you have, you don't have to necessarily be sitting next to them all the time for them to be, for you to know the depth and breadth of that relationship mm-hmm. and for you to know that they got your back no matter what. So it doesn't matter where in the world I am. I know that if something goes down, that's the first person I'm going to call. You know, and he and the same thing with him when he's been in other countries and stuff has happened. And he's like, yo, guess what happened here? I got to tell you what's going, you know, so we, you know, we look forward to that kind of just talking to each other about stuff and we're friends first. We're friends. And that makes a big difference. Best friends. And that makes a big difference in terms of our ability, I think, to navigate a lot of things. I love that. So your mom was a civil rights activist. She still still a civil rights activist. How did that impact on on you and your journey from, from childhood to who you are and what you do now? Um, yeah, she, my mother is a, is a equity practice. I learned everything around what I know from her about particularly the equity journey and, and just how you do this both in community and in corporations. Um, and I was always, you know, it wasn't just her. I have like a family of activists, like straight up family of activists. And I remember I have an uncle who passed away, who was one of my favorites, my uncle Ron, who was, um, like a union champion. And we used to, he used to have us out on the picket lines carrying signs when I was young. Like, hell no, we won't go. And, and you know, equal pay for blah, blah, blah. I mean, all that. So that's always been a part of what I've known because that's what I, you know, that's who my family is. And they've always done that kind of stuff, right? And, and they've always been like justice champions, like justice for folks from the time I can remember. You know, I'm 50 years old. And I, from as long as I can remember, I've had to march for something. I've had to raise my voice for something for somebody, and it's and and while it's primarily been around, um, no, it's I would say I was I was going to say primarily around race, and to some extent it was, but it was also around justice for people, people like ensuring that there was equal justice for folks, no matter who they are, right? That could be poverty, that could be so it could be socioeconomic, it could be race, um, it could be gender, it could be anything, but I think that that's really shaped who I am. And I think that it's some, to some extent, it was at odds. My being in the corporate environments was really at odds with what my upbringing taught me around capitalism and greed and all the things. Right. And so, um, and so now in my kind of next career, I'm focusing on the things that will help to shift some of that. Which is a which which absolutely shaped my journey, for sure, without question. What is that next career? 
Well, it's what I'm kind of doing. It's what I'm doing now. Okay. It's um, it's it's helping leaders be better leaders. So you know, I work with a lot of CEOs and leadership teams globally um, on a number of things. But the but the baseline for me is people doing leading with humanity. And, you know, I think empathy is so overused because it isn't always empathy that's required, but humanity is always required. What's the difference? Um, empathy is important and it, it should be a baseline for how you operate. But I but I think that it's much easier to, re- to remember that people are human. Right. And, and, and that um, the person you're looking across from you is a person with wants and needs and aspirations just like yours or just like you. Um, and then if you think about that first, then empathy comes. If you think about the person as a human first, empathy comes. Um, if you're missing the fact that somebody's humanity at the start, then empathy is really hard to come by. Um, so I think that's that's what I would say about humanity versus empathy. Though I think they're both important. So at the time of recording this, you one of your next steps as well is you're about to step into a public board um, in the UK. We can't say the name, but my time's come out, this should have been released anyway. How are you feeling um, about that and why did you decide to do that? Again, it was really opportunistic for me. Um, I really loved the organization. And, I, I, and I'm not for, I mean, one of the things, the benefits of my experience having been in, in business spaces for a long time is I'm not going to step into something I don't like for the sake of doing it, for the sake of a title, for the sake of whatever. It's easy for me to say because I've already had it, right? And so, that, and so I recognize that too. But I think that it's really important to hold your values and hold your ground. And, and they match my values in a lot of ways. I liked what they were doing. I liked how they thought about things. Um, and so that was the driver for me. There are other boards that have approached me for other things. And I didn't feel that way. And for some of them, I didn't even accept the first interview. I didn't even go for them. When they asked me if I'd be interested in the role, I said, no, it's not my thing. Because I understood the organization didn't align to my values. It wasn't a business I was particularly interested in. And that I would just be doing it to say I was on a board. I, I can't operate that way at this stage in my life. You know, life is short. And I only want to spend it on things that I like and, in fact, things that I love. And mm-hmm. I think that um, that this is something that I really, really will like. And um, and so I'm focused on that. I'm not as focused on being a portfolio board person and having 17 board. That's not my goal. Um, if something else comes up, then maybe it does. But I'm mo- much more interested in things that I like and that things that I want to do. Why is it, um, in fact, two questions from that one. What are your values? <laughs> And two, why is it important that we have more people, more black people on boards? So um, what are my values? Um, I would say that um, justice is a value of mine. I mean, that's a big value of mine. That kind of um, me being just in the, in the, interactions that I have and being thoughtful about the interactions I have, I would say that humility is really important to me. Like, you know, I don't think that anybody should be able to, I think that, that you talk to people for who they are and what they do, who they are and the value they bring and not necessarily the job title they have. Like, I don't care about what your job title is. I care about the, the interaction with people and um, the value they bring, regardless of what that might be. Everybody has a value. And you're missing something if you assume that because somebody doesn't have a certain job title, they don't. 
Um, I would say that my, a big value, so that was the humility piece. Um, I mean, you know, I want to make sure that I'm clear also that I like to earn as much as the next person does. So I don't want to pretend. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm all benign and benevolent and that I don't want to earn money and that I'm not a capitalist. I'm not saying any of those things. Um, but I am saying that I think that you can do things with passion, purpose, and um, a level of integrity. That means that, yes, you might be, you know, you might be earning money, but but the way that you choose to use it might be more thoughtful. The way that you choose to show up might be more thoughtful, understanding that tomorrow all that could be gone. Right. You might be sitting as a CEO of some company today and tomorrow the shareholders vote you out because of something that happened because you had an affair and people found out about it. I mean, all kinds of things, right? So I think the value is an integrity and 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 um, humility and um, people. So that's my values part. And then the second part of your question, <laughs> wait, what was the second part? <laughs> Why is it important that we have more, more black people on board? Black leaders. Um, yeah. Because, you know, we are significant contributors to our societies. And that we aren't reflected um, in corporate on corporate boards, in organizations, and all of that is a travesty, frankly. And that you know, when you think about what leaders look like, um, even in those spaces, even when you when there are black leaders in those spaces, um, you know, I, you know, and without getting into the detail, without going down a rabbit hole, you know, there is a significant amount of colorism in that. And that if we really expect to change people, so let me, let me take a step back. When you look at the top of an organization and nobody looks like you, it means there's no path for me. Mm-hmm. That's how people take that. And that's the, and even if it's not some, something they say out loud, there's no path for me. It's the feeling that you have. Like, mm, I'm here, but mm, there are no people of color at the top three levels of this organization, or maybe one. And that, that means there's no path for me. And what must that person do to get there? And do I want to sacrifice that to have to do that? Right? And so that causes issues of retention and some other stuff. I'm saying all that to say the reason it's important is because if you want to keep and retain your talent, if you want to keep and retain your consumers, we're getting to a point where it's not a choice. You're going to have to do something as an organization to ensure that, frankly, your board and your leadership team reflect modern society, right? That's what it comes down to. It's a reflection of what modern society looks like now. 50 years ago, when modern corporations started, most I'm saying modern, we're going to call that modern corporate times, mm-hmm. The people who sat in all of those seats were white and male all through the organization. There were no people there of any color and of any gender because that's not what happened. Right. It was there were white men who went out to work every day in corporate corporate environments and the policies and standards in those organizations were written to support those people. So there was no bias in those policies and standards. It wasn't because it was written for the people that were there at the time. What we haven't done is reflected modern society and even policies and standards of organizations. And so, you know, we've done all these amendments. Yes, we've amended this policy and that one. But when have most organizations done complete policy rewrites to reflect modern society? And so that's what you're going to get. People behave as the container creates. So you're getting folks who behave as the container of your policies and standards from 50 years ago created. 
right? And that's why people come and go from organizations, but the outcomes remain the same. So it's important to have folks on board, Black people on boards, because it should be a reflection of modern society. Um, and if that's what you, if you want to attract anybody and keep folks in your pipeline, you need to make sure that folks at the top of the house are a part of that equation. You heard? <laughs> the last question I'm going to ask you is around the glasses. The glasses are like, they're part of the brand, the whole... Yes, they are brand India. Uh, how, how, how did that come about? Um, yeah, so it was really interesting because I used to have much longer hair. And when I cut my hair, I felt super naked. I was like, oh, my gosh. I, I, I wasn't ready. I mean, I like my face, but I wasn't ready for I needed something. I was like, what's going to be my pop, pop, pop thing? And then I like, I don't know what happened. I don't even know how I got into my first pair of frames. Oh, I went into like randomly. I went into a, an optical shop and I was like, and I've always liked sunglasses, right? But I was like, oh, I needed glasses. And, and <clears throat> I was getting my eyes checked and they were like, oh, it's time for glasses, right? And I was like, oh, but then I was like, well, I want contacts. But then I was like, I can't put those things in my eyes. And I know this is a really random story. And I couldn't do it. I just was like, no, I don't want to be putting things in my eyes. And then I remember my brother-in-law, like his contact drying up and he had a hard time getting it off. And I was like, oh, no, I can't do that with my eyes. So I decided to start wearing glasses. I bought the first pair and I, and I got so many compliments on them because they were really cute. And I was like, oh, maybe this, I need some more glasses. And then it became this obsession. So then I started to like, when I'd go to certain cities, because I didn't want like regular, like just regular glasses. I'd go to cities traveling and I decided um, I'm going to find the independent optician in any city I go to. So I always looked up the independent optician. So I started going like I'd be in Hong Kong and I'd be like, who are the independent? And I would go and look and get glasses or I'd be in London. Well, I lived in London, but I'd be in London when I went back since I've been back. And there's a place I go in London, the independent optician, where they have the cutest frames. And I was like, I need that, that those. And so that's what I started to do. And I like have gotten this collection of very different looking frames and I change them most days. How many do you have? I'm not telling. Come on. <laughs> no. no. I, think you collect, I think you collect frames like people collect like traders and stuff like that. Uh yeah, it's true. <laughs> it is true. That's what I'm gonna say is it's true. Yes, it is an honest to God truth that I have an obsession with glasses. No, I will never tell how many pairs I have. <laughs> but I do have some really cool things that I brought from Amazon to manage them. They have some really nice glasses trays that you can buy. So it's really nice to have. Trays. Trays. Wow. Trays. <laughs> and this is another question people ask me, so I have to tell this truth, is that they are always prescription. Like, I don't wear... I can't wear plain glasses with just with no prescription because I need to be able to see. So yes, they are all prescription. That's the other question I'm asked often. Are those just glasses or are they prescription? They're always prescription glasses. Um, I think it's it's really dope how it's become part of your brand and, and part of who and how people identify you. Because that's another way of setting yourself apart, isn't it? Differentiating yourself from a, from a physical appearance perspective. So I really, really love that. Thank you. I just um, really loved this conversation and the knowledge 
the wisdom that you've that you've shared and just um, breaking things down around around your journey and some of the things you're going into next. And I also just want to say that when it comes to someone who's spearheaded, spearheaded a lot of work around diversity, women on boards, mentored a lot of people and pushed the dial, that's something that you've always been synonymous with. And I know this, like I said, you're 50, but there's so much more to come. So it's an absolute pleasure just to have you in those spaces, having those conversations, a lot of them behind the scenes that people don't see, but yet things are definitely happening and moving, even though slowly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a it's been a pleasure. And you know, like I said, I'm a huge fan. So I love the podcast. So I can't wait to listen to this one and be like, ooh, I said that. I sound ooh, I don't like how I sound when I'm listening. <laughs> I like other people when I'm listening to them, but ooh, ooh. So no, thank you for having me. I'm, it was such a pleasure spending my time with you. As always. Thank you very much. This is Everyday Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them. You can listen to old episodes or if you have a question about this episode or any other episodes, you can just press a button and ask me that question and I'll answer it on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, share this podcast with someone else. We'll see you next time everyday leadership.